Professor Ian Lola, the director of the center, has kindly asked me to introduce and to produce a lecture because I was director 15 years ago when Andrew spent nine months part-time on secondment from Berkshire Probation Service as a Probation Studies Unit Visiting Fellow at the Centre. It's a great pleasure to welcome you back, Andrew. My colleague, Dr. Ross Burnett, then head of the unit, and I, who advised Andrew, were delighted when his detailed study of the extent to which probation officers had attempted or failed to attempt to increase the employability of probationers and that the impact that this had on the success of those under their supervision in obtaining work was published. I am told that the Centre still receives order for this pioneering work, <laughs> increasing the employability of offenders. It's very cheap. <laughs> in price, but not in substance. This valedictory lecture marks the end of a 38-year, highly successful career in the probation service, culminating in a decade in Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Probation for England and Wales, the last seven years as Chief Inspector, working effectively with the other criminal justice inspectorates. Andrew's decision to link his lecture to the Centre is greatly appreciated by us. It is a further demonstration of his absorption in study and reflection throughout his career. He has obtained two master's degrees while in full-time employment, made contributions to many conferences, and no doubt advised umpteen services, including recently the New Zealand Department of Corrections. Andrew has led the inspectorate with distinction during a challenging and tense period for probation. It cannot have been easy. He has spoken out forcefully in support of the service, while never shirking criticism of practice, where it has, in a few shocking instances, been dis disastrously inadequate. He has insisted that probation work must be judged into, in relation to what it can reasonably, that's a favorite word of his, be expected to achieve if everyone works to the best of their abilities. He has drawn the attention of politicians and the public to the dilemmas that inevitably arise from attempting to protect the public and safeguard victims, while at the same time attempting to help persons, many of them damaged by their upbringing and life experiences, to comply with the conditions of the order to which they are subject, and to reduce their likelihood of reoffending. He is not afraid of controversy or upsetting the press, as when last year he raised the issue of considering the cost of imprisoning many more for longer periods in order to reduce the risk posed by a relatively small number of them. Well done, Andrew. We know, therefore, that we're in for a stimulating and challenging lecture on probation and youth offending work, a tribute to those who do it well. Over to you, Chief Inspector of Probation. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much, Roger, for a very generous introduction. I'm very flattered that everyone has made the choice to come along today and find out what I've got to say on this occasion, virtually my last appearance as Chief Inspector of Probation. My curiosity is almost as great as yours. 
like the absent-minded but enthusiastic Methodist minister, I can't wait to hear whatever it is I've got to say. <laughs> the element of truth in that old joke is that, a bit like preachers who are invited to take the pulpit, you find that when you are asked as a chief executive or a chief inspector to give a speech on a particular subject, you then have to work out whatever it is you want to say. It forces you to come up with some seriously thought through views and opinions on a subject where perhaps previously you didn't have any. It's an aspect of rising to the top, like cream or that other stuff that rises to the top, that I hadn't particularly expected when I first came into senior management almost exactly 22 years ago. I therefore had to work out how to give a speech and at the same time hope that I wouldn't be found out as a total fraud and I'm hoping to get away today on one final occasion without being found out. Now I was going to say at this point quite truthfully that of course I'd never imagined in my wildest dreams that when I started as a trainee probation officer 38 years ago that I would get to be first a chief probation officer for a county probation service, that was Berkshire, in the late 1990s and then in the following decade become the chief inspector as I am now. But then I remembered the story from about a year ago, a reporter interviewing the wife of one of the new ministers in the new coalition government. And he had recklessly asked her, did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams that your husband would one day become a minister of the crown? To which she had replied, my husband doesn't appear in my wildest dreams. <laughs> So, on that note of caution, I shall nevertheless explain, it has a sort of double effect, doesn't it? <laughs> why I have decided to make my farewell speech a tribute, and what precisely I mean by that tribute. It's a tribute because I've always been in awe of the colleagues I've seen at every level who've got what it takes to influence other people for the better through the way that they talk with and listen to them. You can tell from the title of my talk that this is not the case of unconditional praise for everyone and anyone who has ever been a member of a probation or youth offending service. You wouldn't expect that from a chief inspector, would you? I and my inspectorate colleagues have been very critical at times of what we have seen as poor or insufficiently good practice and I'm not going to withdraw now any of the criticisms that I've made on a number of occasions in the last seven years while I've been Chief Inspector. But I am going to have a go at our noble fourth estate here because you wouldn't know from reading press reports that we ever had anything positive to say about anything that probation or youth offending staff had ever done well. And the most striking recent example of this is when we wrote a real prodigal son story on London probation last year saying that whereas their public protection work had been very weak in the past, we were pleased to report that it was now considerably improved, albeit there was still some further progress that yet needed to be made. Now I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but our noble sturdy journalist friends are not quite as independent as they would have you believe. 
and when it comes to daily news events they have a strong tendency to go to an instant consensus among themselves about what the story is and then they all take the same line in reporting it. They behave like a wolf pack in other words. It's a wolf pack that is both greedy and lazy. Any England football manager who's ever lost a match, and that's all of them, isn't it, can vouch for that. Because this is where the laziness comes in. If a person or organisation is out of favour with the public, as of course the probation service currently still is, the lazy journalist will simply reproduce the usual bad news story, and indeed resurrect an old one to put alongside it while they're about it. <coughs> So our report last autumn was about how much London probation had improved its practice, but the media headlines were all about what they were still doing badly. Now a month after that we published that, Ofsted did a remarkably similar story about London's schools. They used to be bad, but now they're better. I paraphrase, you understand. This was correctly reported, unlike the London probation story. Now I do understand that the argument that good news is no news and as one journalist has said to me twice now it's not news that all your dustbins were emptied correctly and on time last week and that's a fair point. But I do get the impression that if prodigal sons were out of favour our press pack could have listened to Jesus recounting the story of the prodigal son and then written it up with the headline prodigal son now stinks. If you know the parable you'll know that this would not be untrue but it would be yet another case of hitting the headline and missing the point again. If this is being quoted for the record <clears throat> let me reiterate Retiring Chief Inspector says that the greedy and lazy press wolf pack often hits the headline and misses the point. This syndrome is of course also seen in media coverage of science, medicine and health as well as of probation and youth offending work. A further symptom of this is that in my seven years in post I have sometimes been challenged by a journalist perfectly reasonably to justify some positive assessment that I've made or less reasonably it's been rubbished okay these things happen but I've never ever been challenged on any of our negative assessments <clears throat> don't you think you've been a bit harsh unreasonable or haven't you just been wise after the event these are questions that no media person has ever asked me. Now in case you're wondering, I'd certainly have very strong answers to those questions, but my point here is that for the reasons that I've already given, I've never been asked them by journalists. Does this matter? It does if you agree with a point made by Wilbert Riddo, the black man who served 44 years in Louisiana prisons before his release in 2005. In his book, In the Place of Justice, he mentions, almost in passing, that the biggest obstacle to meaningful reform is the popular misconceptions about criminals and society's misguided efforts to cope with them. And one of the many things that impressed me about Rido in his book was that his account is in three dimensions rather than two. 
with his original crime, he actually did a very terrible thing, which he does not excuse. And it was actually committed at a time when he had been given a break. He wouldn't have fitted comfortably into the easy category of either a deserving case or an undeserving case in that dichotomy that many people like to operate. Thinking in three dimensions rather than two is so important in probation and youth offending work because much of the job is to explain a reprehensible behaviour, very reprehensible sometimes, and at the same time one has to reaffirm constantly that to explain is not the same as to excuse. So this is one probably final occasion when I can go on the record, as I have done on a number of previous occasions, to highlight that probation and youth offending work is often done very well indeed. I don't retract my previous criticisms of when it wasn't done well, they were still true at the time. But in the interests of fair comment, I like to see the positives and the negatives in proportion alongside each other. However, before my former colleagues and current victims of in our inspections get too excited about this prospect, I shall go further now in explaining the meaning of my title this afternoon. My topic is not principally about the organisations that currently provide probation or youth offending work. I, like this inspectorate that I'm leaving, are not focusing on the organisations, I'm focusing on the work, whoever does it. I've seen excellent work done with individuals who have offended, in prisons by prison officers, instructors, psychologists and other prison staff, as well as by seconded probation officers or outside prison by voluntary organisations or even electronic monitoring contractors as well as by probation or youth offending staff themselves. My tribute is to those who do the work well, whoever does it well, if they do it well. Why am I impressed with these practitioners and their managers? Because they are working with three-dimensional mundane truths, such as explaining why this individual committed this particular offence on this occasion, but they are doing this work in the context of two-dimensional public debates about the nature of crime that are mainly based on exciting fallacies. For we have penal hawks that say that prison is the only real answer to crime because it deters the individual and others and also protects the public. And we have penal doves who say that this only makes people worse and stores up more trouble for the future and that we should always focus on helping people instead. These opposing panacea are both two-dimensional exciting fallacies as indeed are other panacea such as improving the diet of young people, scaring people straight or religious conversions. These and others are all variously put forward at various times as universal methods of curing offenders. So once again I am calling for less heat and more light in our public debates on this subject. For I have constantly found it bizarre that public debate on offending is conducted in such a fashion in the way it is. We probably wouldn't get two medical doctors into a studio and have one arguing that all patients should be treated with antibiotics and the other doctor saying they should all be treated with aspirin. 
though I must now immediately hasten to add here that I believe strongly that offending should not be regarded as if it were a medical condition of which people need to be cured. Moreover, there are certainly potential pitfalls for us from using terms like treatment and dosage in our work. I find it much more valuable for practice to think in terms of desistance as usefully employed in recent years by those such as Stephen Farrell, Shad Maruna, Fergus McNeil than think of people who offend as simply being sick in some way and needing to be cured. However, and this is where we move from exciting fallacies to mundane truths, there are some analogies that do hold good across the two disciplines. Because the mundane truth in these and in many other types of personal service is that the work is about doing the right thing with the right individual in the right way at the right time. Although one key difference with both probation and youth offending work is that this individualised service is one that the individual does not necessarily want to receive. The recipient of the service is therefore not the client in that normal meaning of the word, and instead, for the modern effective practitioner, the client, the beneficiary of the service being provided, is society as a whole, the taxpayer as we sometimes say. Hence, success is accordingly defined ultimately in terms of benefit to society. In the managerial language we currently tend to use, the practitioner is delivering a service to a recipient of that service, but the beneficiary is society as a whole. Although in very many cases we also hope that the recipient uh, will benefit in the long run too. And that's why I say that it's three-dimensional work being done in the context of a two-dimensional public debate. <coughs> what is the practitioner being required to achieve? And I've previously suggested, and I still do suggest, that there are three measurable core purposes to be achieved in all cases, as Roger has alluded to. There are some additional purposes in some cases, but the core three are, first, compliance and enforcement, the purpose of getting the person under supervision to comply with the requirements of the sentence of the court, including what we now call community payback, and to take enforcement action should they fail to comply. This ensuring that the individual serves their sentence is a purpose in its own right, and with care it can be measured as such. <coughs> Second, likelihood of reoffending. The practitioner should engage with the individual who has offended and get them in turn to engage with a range of constructive work. This enables the individual to become measurably less likely to offend again in future. And third, risk of harm to others. The practitioner needs to monitor the behaviour of the individual and using what we call restrictive interventions where necessary, take all reasonable action in order to minimise that person's risk of harm to others. The probation inspectorate has established a way of measuring that too. <coughs> And when working with under-18s, there is additionally a fourth purpose, the safeguarding or child protection purpose of minimising the risk of that young person coming to harm, either from self or from others. 
because although these first three purposes are separate, they do also overlap, and although they overlap, they are also separate. They are like a three-way Venn diagram, and they are measured by three separate means, as I've outlined elsewhere in a paper available on our website. There are three separate Therefore, there are three separate but overlapping purposes, measured in three complementary ways, or four in the case of youth offending work. And then, of course, in some cases, whether adult or young, you might also find you have a further purpose to achieve, a restorative justice purpose. This work is normally a good thing, though I'm not saying much more about it at all today, as this purpose will only apply in some cases. So in summary, each practitioner should engage effectively with each individual under supervision to plan and deliver an individualised service that achieves these three measurable core purposes plus that safeguarding purpose for under 18s. Now I wouldn't think that's too earth-shattering for most practitioners and managers and nor is it too alien to the best traditions of the past. Because during the 80 plus years of advise, assist and befriend, it was still normal probation practice to be able to say to the probationer something like, although what we talk about might be voluntary, actually seeing me each week is still compulsory. There were debates then about whether probation work was about care or control, don't know if people remember those, and whether or not you could or should do both but the majority thought that you had to do both, even in the 1970s. We sometimes on occasions even positively recommended custodial sentences, and I certainly wasn't the only one to do so in that decade. And what are these people like, the ones who have offended, with whom probation and youth offending staff and other staff have to work in order to achieve those three purposes? Because, of course, to the tabloid media, they are, in the customary two-dimensional language, thugs, louts and lags. And to show any trust or optimism towards any of them ever is to be regarded as weak or naive and to be exposed to the most vitriolic criticism. Even our ministers are lampooned in the tabloid press as buffoons, quote, if they dare to show even an ounce of decency towards sentenced offenders. And it's true, of course, that many offenders have indeed done some very selfish, thoughtless or mean things, and some very much worse. And furthermore, I also agree that it doesn't do for well-meaning people to play down the nature and quantity of crime and its impact on individual victims. But as people in this theatre will already know, offenders are not a separate class of monstrous subhumans, another exciting fallacy, but instead we know that over a third of males over 30 have a conviction for an imprisonable offence and quite a few more have committed such offences without being convicted. Offending behaviour in various forms is, as we know, much more widespread than is popularly imagined. The mundane truth is that the criminal justice system is only dealing with certain parts of the whole spectrum of offending behaviour that is going on at any one time. 
within that spectrum, some of those offending individuals have, in doing so, additionally betrayed the trust sometimes invested in them by a probation officer or a judge or indeed the general public. The fact that offending is a wide continuous spectrum also illustrates why the alternative presupposition to see offenders as a separate group of people who are sick and need treatment is also two-dimensional and therefore problematic and ultimately unsatisfactory. Even though there are the various parallels with medicine that I think are sometimes interesting to make when it comes to describing what I mean by an individualized service. If we therefore find useful, as I do, the language of those who talk about desistance and even the path to redemption and the idea of thinking of it as a personal journey, especially for those with either a long or a dramatic criminal record, how does the effective practitioner assist this journey? It was in order to achieve the second of those three purposes, to help people to learn and change and thereby become less likely to reoffend, that most practitioners came into these types of jobs in the first place. And it certainly helps if these workers are not stuck on just one approach to achieving that. Because any worker who thinks that every case they work with just needs helping or saving or curing or punishing is certainly going to fail to handle each case as an individual human being. Though they may have some success with the cases who happen to respond to their preferred approach. I'll say more in a moment about assessments that tell us more about the worker than they do about the person under supervision. But my point at this stage concerns our core presuppositions about offending and those who offend. During my two-year diploma in social work at Leicester in the early 1970s to qualify me as a probation officer, some of us were keen in those days to reject the psychosocial theories that offending was a personal dysfunction, mainly going on inside the offender's own head. And we examined with interest the alternative idea of offending as alienation and as a quasi-political rejection of conventional society. However, in practice, in my career since then, I've perhaps come across a tiny few number of individuals with that conscious aim to rebel against conventional society, but they've been a tiny minority. What is most stri striking to a practitioner in my experience is how far most of the individuals we see have very conventional aspirations and so often their offending arises out of their failure to be able to conform or to achieve their rather conventional aspirations by legal means. As one very blasé 16-year-old persistent offender put it to me once in Hunter Coombe Young Offender Institution, not far away from this university, my problem is that I've got a champagne lifestyle and a lemonade income. Now, like him, many do very selfish and mean things as a consequence of their own failure. And I've hated being a victim of crime and it's happened to me. But I'm constantly reminded that a large majority of people who have offended are more conventional in their aspirations than I had ever expected when I first started this career. 
Offenders of all ages encompass a wide range of individual human beings and it is with this wide range that we want our practitioners to work effectively and to achieve the purposes I outlined a few minutes ago. So what does it look like when you do probation and youth offending work well? Most of you know the answer to this already at one level. As a practitioner, you've assessed your, each of your 50 or so cases sufficiently well. You have placed on the record why you think that this particular individual committed these particular current offences at this time. And you have planned what you think should be done in future to make further offending less likely. In oversimplified words, you've analysed what the problem is and you've proposed what you think should be done about it. By the way though, I have to advise you at this point that all my experience as an inspector and prior to that too as a practitioner and manager has been that practitioners have until now tended to be much better at saying what the problem is and not so good at what they plan to do about it. But today we'll focus on those who do both well. As a good practitioner you will have done both, that's the assessment and the plan and then you've taken that individual with you as you've engaged him or her in that plan and under your direction the main purposes of supervision get achieved under the three headings or more that I outlined earlier. There are lots of ways of achieving these purposes with each very different and individual case and the effective practitioner uses good interpersonal skills. Social work skills we used to call them but the label's not important to engage with the individual under supervision and draw them down the path of wanting to change and then learning to change and improve, especially to achieve that second purpose of becoming less likely to re-offend. And what was once called the casework relationship, increasingly poo-pooed for most of the last 30 years or so, has recently re-emerged as engagement with offenders. It's clearer now than it sometimes used to be that the effective use of the practitioner's interpersonal skills should not be seen as an end in itself as the casework relationships sometimes seem to be regarded in the past but it should instead be seen as an influencing skill and as a means to an end. It's a means of influencing someone under supervision to turn up to their appointments, engage constructively in the supervision process and thus become less likely to re-offend. And it's the practitioners who do this well that impress me. Now linked to this point I would add from personal experience in the 1970s that the most satisfying cases were the tiny number where I said or did something which then had a transformational effect on the person under supervision and to be candid it was a pretty rare event and with one exception I had not even been implementing a plan at the time. Rather I'd simply seized an opportunity to get through that person's defences. These occurrences were rewarding but they were very unusual at least for me. Hence, an important new factor in the last 15 years has been the advent of structured assessment tools. These were necessary because researched experience had shown that assessments that relied solely on an individual practitioner's personal judgment were not particularly effective 
and often said as much about the practitioner's personal interests as it did about the individual being assessed. And incidentally, I gather that research into medical diagnoses has led to some similar findings in medical practice too. The new assessment tools usually incorporate an actuarial element that implies some kind of prediction. A prediction that is often misunderstood. It doesn't say that this individual is, say, 70% likely to re-offend. Instead it says that of 100 people with the same history, profile and characteristics as this, interview, as this individual, 70 will re-offend and 30 won't. What the tool won't and indeed can't tell you is whether this individual will be one of the 70 or one of the 30. Accordingly, it is when reflecting on this information that the skilled practitioner makes that assessment first on whether this person might be one of the 70 or one of the 30 and more importantly plan to take the action that will make it more likely that the person will become one of the 30 who doesn't reoffend, rather than one of the 70 who does. Now what I've described is simple to say but difficult to do which is why I admire the skilled practitioners who do this well. And this also illustrates why it is not reasonable to expect practitioners or even their managers to be able to eliminate risk entirely, either to vulnerable individuals or to the wider public. But it is reasonable to expect such staff to do their jobs properly. To do this, the skilled practitioner accountable to their manager will take all reasonable action, as previewed by Roger, all reasonable action to keep those risks of harm to a minimum. Given that they are working with people who are at liberty in the community, people who have offended but who are not or are no longer locked up, but instead are simply subject to rules, it should not be surprising that catastrophes can still happen even when the work done has been very good. But thankfully this is a rare occurrence. It's in the order of 1 in 200 per year of cases already classified as being of high or very high risk of harm to others. But it will of course capture the media attention if the impact of the event captures public imagination. And we should be sympathetic and not unduly surprised at this. It is human to have an emotional relationship with risk. That feeling of, it could be you, is the one that encourages people to buy national lottery tickets, even though the odds are worse than at your local casino or betting shop. And it's the reverse version of the same human feeling that is triggered by news of a new victim of a serious crime. The sheer magnitude of the prospective event brings out that emotional feeling that it could have been me that distracts us from the true, rational, very low probability of that event actually happening. HM Inspectorate of Probation was one of the very first to declare to the public that point that risk to the public could not be eliminated and it was right that the public should expect people to do their job properly. 
By saying this, we wanted to avoid using 2020 hindsight to criticise practitioners for failing to achieve the impossible, and instead we wanted to judge whether they were achieving what was possible. And to this end, we devised our own, <coughs> our way of assessing, with each case inspected, whether all reasonable action was being taken to minimise the individual's risk of harm to others. We have been doing that through our case inspections for several years now, and overall we have seen some excellent public protection work. We have found that nearly three-quarters of probation practice and nearly two-thirds of youth offending practice has met the high level of quality we have been looking for in terms of that public protection practice. Now, of course, I would like to see higher percentages, of, but today my attention is on those who are already doing this difficult job well, and the majority are. And this leads me to comment briefly on what I find to be another strange phenomenon. Given that this is all individual practice by individual practitioners, it seems strange to me how quickly some people look to jump to the conclusion that one piece of poor practice or one dodgy community payback placement means that that whole organisation can simply be assassinated. What seems odd to me is that while sometimes we tend to overcomplicate the job, as I'll touch on later, sometimes, as here, we simplify it too much. It's madness to dismiss the entire value of a particular probation trust, youth offending team, or business or voluntary organisation just on the basis of one piece of it poor individual practice. Alternatively, however, one can judge an organisation instead on the basis of a representative sample of its work, which is what the probation inspectorate does. In our inspections, we examine such representative samples and we make judgments about whether a piece of work was done well enough or not, and we aggregate those hundreds of qualitative judgments into quantitative scores that report how often different aspects of the work were done well enough. The fact is that even in some of the low scoring areas, we have still found examples of very good practice, and even in the high scoring areas, we found examples of insufficient practice. The difference between the areas is in the proportions of sufficient to insufficient quality of work. And it isn't just about supposedly good versus supposedly bad practitioners either, because no one gets all their own cases right all of the time. I'm quite clear that during my eight years as a main grade probation officer, I sometimes look back on a day <coughs> or on a case, and on some occasions I'd be thinking, I think I did okay there. And on other occasions I'd be thinking, well, I think I got that one wrong. I very much doubt if I'm alone in that experience. What makes the difference between whether you, good, whether you get good practice frequently rather than rarely is if you have the ethos in the organisation of reviewing and learning from experience. A well-organised organisation will find ways of promoting that sense that everyone is constantly learning and is doggedly pursuing the long haul of continuous improvement. And I have to say that I'm a much stronger believer in continuous improvement rather than innovation. 
I don't think that inventing new gimmicky panaceas is the most productive way forward when there are over 240,000 adult offenders at any one time to be managed in the community. I think it is more productive to pursue the long haul of continuous improvement, although that can include using innovative ways of improving. This approach requires growing a strong organisational culture, that is, the cumulative effect of numerous self-reinforcing informal behaviours and mutual expectations of each other by most staff. This positive culture is not easy to achieve or maintain during periods of repeated organisational upheaval, though not impossible. So I will introduce at this point the contributions that can be made by managers, inspectors, academics and policy makers to enabling probation and youth offending work to be done well. And I'll start this section with a few words about management and inspection. Management generally is about making it happen, in the words of John Harvey Jones, and so it is very much part of the doing of the work. Independent inspection is about commentating instead of doing, but commentating on how well the work is being done. Inspection is a very privileged job to have. Indeed, I've upset a few colleagues by pointing out that in theory we can write almost what we like and then publish it at public expense. My point is that inspection is a privilege and that therefore we should take great care with how we conduct that privilege. I outlined earlier how we produce quantitative scores by aggregating the qualitative judgments we've made about how well practice has been carried out and we aim to do this accurately, fairly, consistently and transparently and we also aim to behave in such a way that practitioners and managers will want to respond by improving their practice. Inspection is therefore a particularly indirect means of promoting continuous improvement in practice across the country. In a brief commercial for the inspectorate, I'll also mention that because we measure quality of practice, working with judgments rather than rules, we provide a benefit that no other organisation can provide, thus achieving what the management wonks call unique added value. I also suggest that it's a very poor quality cost-benefit analysis that's being made by anyone who suggests that having the inspectorate descend on you once every three years ago to assess a sample of your work is somehow imposing an unduly heavy burden on providers because on the contrary our inspections are very proportionate. Meanwhile, management is about achieving continuous improvement in practice in the first place, actually making it happen. It's a genuinely complex job, as I can vouch for myself as a former Chief Probation Officer. For as a manager, your influence on frontline practice is still somewhat indirect rather than direct. Only on rare occasions in this work can you directly witness and seek to influence frontline practice unlike, say, Gordon Ramsay directing the chefs under him in his kitchen. Management of probation and youth offending work has to be largely somewhat indirect, as it is in some other organisations too, 
and therefore consists of using a wide range of influencing skills and strategies to achieve its purpose. The range of activities and behaviours you exercise as a manager of this work needs to be very varied, but essentially it all adds up to finding and using ways of making good practice more likely to happen and poor practice less likely to happen. I think of it as essentially growing the right behaviours. But don't we just love to overcomplicate this exercise? There's a whole industry of management trainers and consultants banging on about how to improve your management effectiveness by having visions, strategies, business plans, action plans, plans for HR, training, communications, equalities and business continuity and you must be able to explain and give account of your governance arrangements and relationships with your stakeholders. Now, of course, there is a small nugget of golden truth inside each and every one of these elements of management life. But we tend to overlay them with so much overcomplicated dross that the cumulative weight of all these activities constantly threatens to displace attention from ensuring that the core work is actually still being achieved in the first place. I have certainly noticed during the last 15 years how much management attention and energy is increasingly directed up the hierarchy, constantly giving account up to and supporting the apex, rather than directed down towards the front line and making sure that the core work is being done as well as possible. Numerous practitioners have told us that they feel that the interview they've just had with one of our inspectors is the closest thing that they've had to supervision for several years. Now, some organisations try to overcome this problem by appointing more managers to spread the load of the extra work. But as, as some of you have heard me say rather a lot over the years, Managers are like motorways. More often than not, they simply create more traffic. A large amount of the, any manager's time is spent liaising and coordinating with other managers, and the more managers there are, the more management time is spent on doing this liaising, often resulting in each task being done several times, or even creating new, seemingly worthwhile but non-productive tasks that now seem to need doing. It's a real skill to be able to determine whether a particular manager post adds genuine value to the work of the organisation or whether it is on balance mainly creating more non-productive work to be done. Management work and behaviour is fascinating. I know I have an MPhil from the School of Management of the University of Bath and I really enjoyed it. But the mundane truth here is that effective management ultimately boils down to what makes good frontline practice more likely to happen. And ineffective management is what makes good practice less likely to happen. And that's it. There's no magic bullet in this. And there's lots of different influencing actions, not just by managers, that can have the same positive effect in the right setting. The good ones are the ones that are all about growing the right behaviours. And of course practitioners sometimes do the right thing with the right individuals in the right way at the right time most of the time, despite the fact that they're not particularly well managed. But they are more likely to work well if they are well managed.
So managers impress me when they can show that they were clear what they wanted their organisation to achieve and then achieved it by taking their people with them. In probation and youth offending work, the practitioners are most effective when they believe in their work, so although formal instructions and other documentation might play a small part in the process, I think it is when practitioners not only understand what their boss wants them to achieve, but actually want to achieve what their boss wants, that effective practice takes off. And in my view, the most powerful driver for good practice is an ethos among team members that says, this is the way we do things around here, and where they help each other to achieve that. The team members, whether in a single team or across a large part of the organisation, sometimes grow this pattern of behaviour themselves, but effective managers will be, will be the ones that find ways of growing these behaviours in their organisation. My longer talk about effective probation management also stresses the importance of designing the task well and also equipping people with the tools to do the job, but that will have to wait for another time. That's not my focus today. My point about growing a culture becomes particularly relevant when we refocus on what makes practice effective. The current emphasis on the rehabilitation revolution and the renewed interest in local initiative highlights again a curious truth about practice that I've noted for over 30 years now. It's very clear to me that practitioners working with offenders and others seem to achieve particularly good results when they see themselves doing something new and exciting. Forty years ago it was intermediate treatment and there was group work and there was family therapy and then nearly 20 years ago the What Works movement was developing and showing very promising early results. Nowadays there are many new and exciting local projects and initiatives including many with a strong element of the arts using drama or dance and many of them also produce impressive early results. However, unfortunately, a lesson from the past is that, after a while, and as the numbers of people have gone through these programs increase over time, the results start to do that annoying thing that statisticians call regression to the norm. As the particular work ceases to be new and exciting, the results start to become average again. And statisticians can indeed be very annoying at times. As we poured over some performance data in my Berkshire days, looking for some encouraging trends, our information manager would be there saying, don't forget, in data analysis, anything unusual or interesting is usually an error. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. But cynicism about effectiveness has never been the lesson I have drawn from this phenomenon, and I'm certainly not dissing the whole works movement of focusing on evidence-based practice, because it remains true that work to improve people's thinking skills or reduce their addictions, or especially to get them into employment, each applied as needed for each individual case, is going to be more effective with numerically more cases than most other interventions. And other specialist interventions too, such as anger management and sex offending programs, will also have an effect with many other cases where they have been correctly identified and allocated. 
well-focused and designed interventions can produce reconviction rates that are between 5 and 15% lower than they would otherwise have been. Now I'm taking all that as read, as with all the practitioners doing probation and youth offending work well. All these interventions can assist an individual offender on his or her personal journey towards desistance. What I'm adding to all that is an additional factor, what the practitioners see themselves as doing when they're at work, their phenomenology, if you like, and the effect that their consequent behaviour has on the person under supervision. Because what has always struck me is that the thing in common with all the different successful projects, even when they're using very different methods, is that the practitioners think they're doing something new and exciting and their enthusiasm is evident to the individuals they're working with to beneficial effect. However, perhaps, when the novelty has worn off, their effectiveness has tended to wane. So I've had this working hypothesis in the back of my mind for over 30 years now that this phenomenon is a variation of the Hawthorne effect. This is where they experimented with lighting levels in an American factory in the 1930s and found that production increased whether the lighting levels were increased or decreased. It seems that just doing something new and experimental that did the trick. And probation and youth offending practitioners feel enthusiastic and optimistic about what they're doing and they have a strong desire to make it work. Enthusiasm is infectious and it seems clear to me that if it is well focused, the person on the receiving end is more likely to respond positively to this enthusiasm and be inspired to change their behaviour. I'm sure that many of you here will have seen that yourselves on many occasions. Remember my point here is that this enthusiasm is not a new magic bullet and it doesn't displace the relevance of evidence-based practice but it is a component that I think is not sufficiently recognised. And it is something that has to be taken into account when looking to draw lessons from new and exciting projects, whether local or national, where the initial success may appear to recede over time. For the lesson from such events is not it's all a waste of time in the long run. Instead, the lesson is to think about how that enthusiasm and excitement can either be prolonged or renewed to enable the work to continue to be effective. And I give a deliberately paradoxical name to what leaders and managers need to be trying to do here. They need to try to institutionalise the Hawthorne effect. And this of course readily links with the approach I've advocated elsewhere, such as in my recent work in New Zealand that Roger mentioned, because skilled practitioners will work positively if they are given responsibility to make their own decisions about how to achieve effective results and be accountable for those decisions within set boundaries. We see that in the best practice we examine during our inspections. And we have also sometimes seen the opposite because what you tell yourself you're doing can speak volumes. If you think your job is just to fill in some forms rather than to plan the work that needs doing, you're hardly likely to inspire the individual under supervision to want to change. 
and therefore policymakers and academics, as well as managers and inspectors, can all play their part in promoting practice, which encourages and enables practitioners to plan and act skillfully, taking responsibility and giving account for their decisions and actions. It's a bit scary, both for managers who are used to micromanaging and for practitioners who sometimes ask to be micromanaged and of course sometimes bad things will still happen. But this job simply doesn't work if you try to operate it through a detailed procedure manual. Performance targets are one optional approach here and they are not always necessarily a bad thing. Well chosen ones can usefully focus attention on an aspect of practice that might need to be sharpened up. But although performance targets can be useful, I'm afraid that too often in practice it's been a case of hitting the target and missing the point. Unintended perverse incentives can lead to unintended perverse effects, such as when the police were incentivized to bring as many offenders as possible to justice. It led to the acceleration of many early juvenile offenders into the criminal justice system in the mid-2000s. Policy makers and managers, please take note. Make very sure that you've thought through very thoroughly, indeed, what effect your decision is likely to have on the behaviour of the people who actually do the work. It's no good having big picture strategic ideas, thinking that you can then leave it to some other operational people to work through in practice, because that's not good enough. You have to be able to see both the wood and the trees. Or, if you prefer to become a brilliant strategist, as Napoleon was, you would have to be like him in always knowing where every single gun was. Because sometimes the detail is how the strategy is achieved, or is undermined if you get the detail wrong. And policy makers, please learn from the evidence, as you expect practitioners to do. If there is one thing that is crystal clear from the last 40 years, it is that so-called tough conditional alternatives to prison have up to now unfailingly led to more people ending up in prison. From 1968 to the early 1980s, and from the early 90s to the present, suspended sentences and the promotion of other so-called tough alternatives to custody have unfailingly led to steady increases in the prison population. <laughs> and this has arisen from the combination of two factors. First, despite everyone's genuine best intentions, many convicted individuals received the tough alternative sentences when in reality they would not have previously received a prison sentence at all. And second, many of those individuals then re-offend and end up in custody where they might not previously have done so if the conditional alternative sentence had not been passed in the first place. So on one level, that's their own fault, of course, but it's, in, it's, it's a reality that illustrates that many people who offend simply don't think about what they're doing. Many of them would benefit instead from training in thinking through the consequences of their own behaviour. But of course, that's only if you can engage with them skillfully to get them to attend and engage with that training. If what you want instead is to focus expenditure on imprisonment where prison most evidently provides a benefit, 
then you'll do what the whole system was doing in the 1980s and which the juvenile system is doing now. You build a series of non-conditional measures in the criminal justice system that delay the first sentence of custody for many offenders who then simply grow out of crime anyway at minimum cost to the taxpayer. And I call this attrition management and it's both economical and surprisingly effective on any reasonable cost-benefit analysis. Because on the same train of thought, the irony for today is that by far and away the most cost-effective reform to current imprisonment practice is one that for political reasons simply can't be done. Rogers mentioned it, my analysis last year of the careful documentation by the Ministry of Justice of the end of custody license scheme of 2008 to 10, it showed that the final fortnight or so of an ordinary prison sentence involves locking up about 60 individuals at a cost of about 80 to 100,000 pounds to prevent just one of those 60 committing just over one fairly ordinary offence during those same two weeks or so. Now that looks expensive by any rational cost-benefit analysis as well as rather hard on the 59 or so individuals who are not going to re-offend during that same fortnight anyway. However, this government painted itself into a corner by saying before the election that it absolutely wouldn't ever reintroduce early release. So for political reasons, in the context of the two-dimensional public debate about prison, it's a non-starter. Overall, my key point here is that in their different ways, managers, inspectors, academics and policy makers can all act in different ways that make it harder for practitioners to do their jobs properly, or alternatively they can do things that actually promote good practice. Can I summarise, therefore, my key points? And I'll have a go. Probation and youth offending work is difficult to do well. You are trying to do the right thing with the right individual in the right way at the right time with a large number of infinitely different human beings. In this sense, the work is always three-dimensional work. And that's a mundane truth but you are doing it the whole time in the context of a wide range of public debates dominated by two-dimensional exciting fallacies. Management and inspection can actually get in the way of promoting improvement in practice if it gets it wrong by over-prescribing and monitoring rules and procedures designed to tell practitioners what to do in any eventuality that might arise. But if instead we make it clear what are the bottom line purposes we're asking practitioners to achieve and how we're going to measure those, then we can give skilled practitioners the discretion to make their own decisions about how they will work to achieve those purposes with each case and be accountable for those decisions. That is the much more promising approach for management and inspection. And inspection has moved and management does appear to be moving now in that direction. And I think this means that each practitioner can keep asking herself or himself, not only at formal review times, but at other times too, with each case that they have. First, am I holding this individual to the terms of the court sentence or license? That's promoting compliance and enforcing if and when needed. 
Second, am I helping this person to become less likely to re-offend in future, and how will I evidence that? That's using principally constructive interventions to achieve measurably reduced likelihood of re-offending. Third, am I taking all reasonable action to protect others from harm from this individual? That's using principally restrictive interventions to minimise that individual's risk of harm to others. And youth offending practitioners have that fourth purpose to achieve. Am I taking all reasonable action to protect this young person from coming to harm either from self or from others? That's minimising risk of harm to self. Because relatively speaking, all this is simple to say and difficult to do, and yet most people who do probation and youth offending work are doing this well a lot of the time now, and doing that more often and better than before, though obviously I'd very much like it to be even more often. This is what continuous improvement is all about. So those of you who are doing this work in whatever organisations you do it, if you are part of this syndrome of doing it well now and doing it better and more often, then this is my tribute to you. Thank you. This would be a stimulating, challenging lecture. And I also said that one of the great characteristics of Andrew Bridges is his thirst for knowledge, his constant study, and his ability to reflect on the tasks in which he's been involved all his career. And I think that lecture did really show that excellent form of analysis, of reflection on what really matters about the work he's been doing. It had, I thought, some of the best aspects of the very best type of sermon. <laughs> and I think that's true to you. So Andrew is willing to, the next 20 minutes, to take some questions or reflections uh, from you in the audience. So please put your hand up and begin. Andrew, um, we've got a generation of practitioners who've grown up with quite detailed national standards, both in probation and youth justice world. And, and as we move towards a loosening of attention being given to national standards, is there anything that you want to say about the implications for the future in terms of good practitioners doing the right things with the right, at the right time with the right people? Thank you. I think... <coughs> I think there probably are, as you suggest, people who haven't had the earlier experience where you had more discretion and are more used to having things more prescribed. Um, and I think in England and Wales you've got the promotion of what they call the engagement project and also the professional judgment project, which is trying to reintroduce the idea of using discretion. And the slightly earlier experience that I've been involved in in New Zealand, the big lesson I would say is, do remember this is a cultural transformational change. You can't just, I don't think anybody does think this, but in case they do, you can't just issue some instructions that as of the 1st of October, everybody's going to use their discretion. 
New Zealand, it's a three-year, you know, they call it a three-year transformation change program. And New Zealand is a tenth of the population of England and Wales. So, um, you know, a larger organisation, it's quite a big cultural change to go through for them. But there's no reason why it can't be done almost universally people welcome the idea of working that way. Um, as you know, I'm Jane Webb, Prisons and Probation Ombudsman, responsible for investigating deaths in approved premises and complaints. Um, an observation, I'm disappointed that you observed that risk of self-harm might only apply to under 18-year-olds, but a question also. Um, I believe that the prison population is ageing and I wondered what thought you and your colleagues had given to the impact on the probation service of those under supervision. Thank you. Well, yes, I'm being very specifically uh, <coughs> specific function. There isn't a duty of care other than, of course, you're managing uh, people in, a, in um, approved premises, as hostels are now called. Um, Yes, I think that uh, probation are aware, probation trusts are aware that you will get occasionally people released from prison at, at, a, at a relatively elderly age. I don't know that I have a particular uh, brief on that other than to observe that it's been gradually building up and coming. So that uh, back in the Berkshire days, you know, having the hostels converted so that there were ground floor suitability, you could take wheelchairs and I was thinking well didn't have this sort of thing 20 years ago um, so yes it's a gradual change that's coming but I, as far as I can tell and obviously it's not something I've particularly studied I think that uh, uh, trusts are aware of and are gradually adapting to to the fact that they're going to have to take that on as well I think what it also highlights is just what a breadth of work that every probation trust in particular has to take on. It's true also to some extent of youth offending teams, but in particular the just sheer breadth of operations that are currently run by, by every probation trust. More than an ex-probation officer. Yeah. Um, I was uh, very encouraged to hear your attack on managerialism and particularly um, thrilled with your use of the word dross to describe much of the uh, uh, management practices nowadays. Um, I, also uh, very encouraged to hear um, you describe how the imposition of change from the top down repeatedly over the years can be very dispiriting and discouraging to practitioners and can in, in fact affect their practice. Um, I was wondering how you squared that with what you then went on to say, which is that change is a really positive thing and that practitioners are really encouraged by change and, and, and practice much better when change is constantly imposed upon them. And I guess, for me, I think the difference is that the practitioners in the second scenario you described feel empowered and feel more in control of their decision-making, whereas in the first scenario you described those decisions were being made from the top down. Thanks, Tracy. Good to see you again. Uh, the, uh, didn't hear me use the term managerialism because I don't actually recognise it. I just think there's good management and bad management. And, uh, um, you know, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. But it, also the link to that is therefore it isn't that management's either good or bad. It's that, and I'm trying to define what it is that, makes for good management and I do see it and 
you know, the terminology you've heard me use is a bit more organic, if you like. It's about growing a culture. And it doesn't mean it's all cuddly. You do take some very hard decisions, as, 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 as every manager knows, and people on the receiving end sometimes experience. But I do think there, has been, there have been, I suppose to re reiterate my own point, that a lot of these important golden nuggets of things that really do need doing just seem to come surrounded with a huge cumulative weight of dross and it has had that effect and you know whereas I wouldn't be a, a positive advocate of um, huge public expenditure cuts as you might expect I think if there is some benefit to that it could be that people will think much more carefully about what do we really need managers for and let's have them and do them well and use them well uh, and then le have less of these what I've called non-productive tasks that managers get caught up in doing. It's not, it's not about malice, it's about the fact there's you know, too many people. You, the, phrase of, the old fashioned phrase of too many cooks spoil the broth is, is, is just comes back to you um, day by day in any, in any large organisation. Um, and yet each individual you meet is bright, intelligent, trying to do a good job, almost invariably, but it's the cumulative effect of that. It needs much better design, and I do obviously echo your point, it's much better if managers can focus on improving the core work rather than have so much time, you've got to do some accounting upwards, but so much time accounting upwards. I, it's, that's been a revelation to me in the last 10 years. Hi, Andrew. Uh, Nick, Nick Hardwick from the Prisons Inspector, so thank you for the uh, lecture. Um, I wondered whether you would like to uh, say something about the probation service's role within NOMS. Uh, see Michael Spurs sitting there somewhere in the audience, and about how that's affected both uh, its the sort of managerial issues you speak about, and whether it's also affected the probation service's ability to have a distinctive voice in some of the media debates that you describe. Yes, well, this is um, where I sometimes make myself a bit unpopular because the first thing I'll say is emotionally, as someone who's had 30 years in, in probation, it's quite distressing to have probation taken over by the prison service. And there's no point pretending that it's anything other than a takeover. Um, but I think to be perfectly rational about it, it's quite clear to me there have been quite distinct benefits and it just so happens that the resource management in probation was not often carried out particularly well in the past and I see it being carried out much better now than I had ever seen in the past. <coughs> so, um, it, it, so whereas I wouldn't have been a fan of creating norms in the first place, I suddenly would go to the other thing, well now let's know let's get rid of it because actually there has been a distinctive <laughs> benefit I think probably probation is it, the, the the resource allocation in probation is better than it would otherwise have been um, in terms of a distinctive voice it never happened uh, one of the things that people were expecting with the creation of a national probation service was that there would be this national voice at the center 
but the way that central government works is that, that never actually happened so that the benefit that was hoped for didn't happen and instead it actually became part of this trend to having to spend more and more energy giving account upwards so um, you know having got over my emotional grief about what's happened I'm actually quite comfortable uh, with uh, where we are now with probation within norms um, I'm also an ex-probation officer. I'm just wondering what you feel about the training of um, probation officers and whether you regret the dropping of the social work qualification. Well, I, I, oh dear, because it's another opportunity to be unpopular. Uh, <laughs> because um, much, as, much, as I, much as I enjoyed my two-year social work course and I thought it was a very good education, I didn't think it was particularly good training. Um, I had to do all the learning later on. Um, I knew that was that's one type of uh, uh, experience, but actually there were all sorts of drawbacks with that hermetically sealed two-year course. And you know, my my unpopular view is that there's a lot to be said for organising training so that it, it's work-centred and that people can come into the organisation and learn and develop their skills through the organisation without having to suddenly go away, take a pay cut, take the risk of not being able to come back and if you've run a probation service in the south, or even for that matter I imagine a youth offending service in the southeast outside London, in that donut outside London, you have got real problems recruiting staff unless you can grow them right through the organisation. So yes, it's a bit like the other one. There's a bit of personal grief, emotional grief, but actually I think it's better to, to organise um, in effect in service training. Mike McLennan from, from NAPO. Um, another question really about management. You, you said there's good management and bad management and, and of course there's offender management as well. And how refreshing to sit through a, a, a lecture about probation for an hour and not hear the two words offender and management linked together once. Um, I might have dropped off once or twice but I don't think so. You used the, you used the word offender uh, eight times I, I noted down but never offender management and, and it reminded me a bit of, of going to a, a museum in St Petersburg a few years ago and having this strange feeling that Stalinism had been completely erased from uh, the history of Russia. Not that I'm comparing Stalinism with offender management, of course, but, but it, you mentioned what works twice, and offender management never. And I, I, I was, um, as I say, refreshed and gratified by that, because I think you, you know my aversion to uh, the concept of offender management, particularly in the context of, of desistance, which again you talked up, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and in, in, in desistance, we have, I think it was Shad Maruna who talks about having a developing a positive self-image as a good place to start with um, reducing a person's likelihood of reoffending. So I wonder if you'd just like to say whether you thought uh, the concept, the culture of offender management has been a, a useful one in terms of the Hawthorne effect. I think the problem with offender management, why I didn't use the phrase, is because it means too many different things to different people. And, you know, there is a cohort of people where it is just something where you have an instant emotional reaction against it. I have no problem with what the 
Now what, I, what I've described is a perfectly respectable definition of good offender management. Um, but one of the problems quite early on is that sometimes offender management means what the person in charge of the case does and sometimes it means everything that is ever done with the case and you're never quite clear well which are they talking about so as in many of our reports I try to use different language to describe what I mean so I'm not actually bringing comfort to you Mike in terms of a rejection of offender management as a concept um, and it isn't a it isn't a sort of uh, 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 a case of disappearing a bit of past ideology. I think the concept of managing a case from start to end of sentence, someone being in charge all the way through and arranging everything to happen, that was perfectly good. I didn't mind it being called offender management. Personally, I think one should try to use the term offender as little as possible, but I don't make it a non-word sometimes you actually need to use the that to say what you mean but if you trot it out too often it does become terribly depersonalizing and so I would just rather keep its use to a minimum so it's more about my style and choice of language rather than about a rejection of a concept Thank you. Andrew, good afternoon. Uh, John Budd, Chief Exec, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough Probation Trust and also from the Probation Chiefs Association. Andrew, a question developing on what Nick Hardwick was talking to. A question developing on what Nick Hardwick was uh, talking to you about. Um, where do you think is the beating heart of probation? Who do you think owns the beating heart of probation? And how do you think we can best nurture the beating heart of probation? <laughs> that might be a bit of a sort of ethereal question, but I think you know what I'm, I'm getting at. Uh, it's interesting. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, the, the, the terminology is not one I, I, I actually you know, readily go with, um, but if you're talking about you know, a kind of core ethos about, uh, of what it's about, it doesn't obviously rest... In, in one particular place. In the end, where it really counts is in the actions of each practitioner with each of the cases they're dealing with. So, you know, if you're asking me for a definitive answer, it's got to be there. And, it's, and that's why I suppose I tend to use this kind of organic language of you're trying to grow that as well as you, as well as you possibly can. I've highlighted how management can make it more difficult to do it well or at its best can help to make it uh, uh, do well much more often. In terms of representation, I mean, you've mentioned the, uh, we've now got a probation association and a probation chiefs association again. I think that's probably helped. We, you know, one of those predecessors disappeared in, in 2001 and it was probably a disadvantage because al although it was important to have a voice for employers, for other people, the probation association is the voice of the employing bodies whereas the Probation Chiefs Association, which has been going at least a year, two years now, uh, voice of, of the Chiefs. And I think you do need that voice to contribute in the context where we are now. I haven't said, you haven't heard me make a claim for the Inspectorate, 
uh, in terms of, if you like, being somehow the centre or heart of, of probation, I think we have a particular role because we speak on behalf of the general public. We're trying to, you know, the general public should be able to trust us to say something. So in that sense, we're a slightly detached observer saying this is how it's supposed to be and this is how we're finding it. So it, it probably, in, in your language, it probably isn't the inspectorate. But that's the closest I, I would get and it's what people do that I'm more interested in than what people think or feel other than, obviously, the effect it has on what they do. We have time just for one more question from Colin Roberts. Yes. Of course, himself very active in our probation studies unit when it existed. Thank you, Roger. Um, can I just make an observation to you, Andrew, and see what your reaction? I, I have the fortune thing of being retired, and therefore I can do what I like with my research. So one thing is, is that I've been able to do you know, research that I'm interested in. I've been looking at cases, these are uh, yacht cases, young offender team, where the young people seem to be doing a lot better than could have been expected. And it seems to me that we can learn a lot more from that than sometimes we can from the failures. But what I see in the cases, the commonality of the cases, is that usually it involves more than one member of staff. So there has to be complex plans but with complementary practices in which they are all in differing ways working with that young offender and usually their family to try and, and get some movement of change. They're working on the positives in the young person rather than always their failures. And often or not, they're working very carefully with other agencies. And it's that sort of complex complementarity, <coughs> complementarity between them that seems to me to be associated with success with those sort of cases. Now, is that observation, do you think, unusual? Do you think that could apply with adult offenders more? Uh, that was what the best idea of offender management was it precisely supposed to be about that. So what Colin was asking, in case people didn't hear, was about the fact that w with the best cases and some of his research with youth offending, it's involved more than one worker involved in a case. So yes, the best idea about what offender management was supposed to be about, so forget you don't like the term, but just think about the concept, Mike. That <laughs> it's about, you know, someone's in charge of the case, managing, that's why I use language like that. Um, and they make sure that the right thing is done with the right individual in the right way at the right time and that might be done by lots of different people who are all involved in the case and all being, if you like, coordinated by the person in charge of the case. So that has strong resonance, uh, certainly is not at all incompatible with anything else I've said here, but you're right, I didn't particularly pick up on that aspect. And. Um, it might gain more acceptance if we called it something else now. Um, the youth offending world has never called it offender management, and you can understand why. But uh, yes, we do, need, we do need to be able to promote that way of thinking as being a significant part of what makes for effective practice and perhaps find uh, a better way of describing it than we've, than we've done up to now. Thank you. thank you very much. I'd like to thank you on behalf of the Centre for Criminology, and, uh, Professor Ian Loder, for coming here.
this afternoon the very interesting points you've raised in response to Andrew's stimulating lecture. And to thank Andrew in particular for choosing Oxford and his uh, connections with the Centre for Criminology as the place in which he delivered this really interesting, stimulating, reflective lecture. So we will go next door for some refreshments, but first of all, let's thank you again, Andrew.